we stand forgiven at the cross today, amen? Just think about that word. Forgiven. Be forgiven. What an amazing concept. What an amazing word. We, uh, before we begin today, you can turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke 18. And you can also turn, put your finger in Romans chapter 3. We'll be in Luke 18 and Romans 3 this morning. We do have a lot out for uh, spring break. We have a, a mission team in Nicaragua. We also have some who are out with uh, sickness, uh, some in my own home. But there are some who have some, some very serious uh, Sicknesses. I heard this morning that Margaret Lee, um, member of our church, longtime member of our, of our church, is in the emergency room this morning. So be sure to be praying for her. Um, the Rainies, for instance, Andy and Monica, uh, they're not here today. They uh, spent the week uh, in Little Rock with their daughter who has uh, spinal cancer. And um, very difficult week for them. We have a number of people, and I, I'm sure I'm leaving some out. So please forgive me, but I want to I want to open this morning as we ask God to bless our time together. I want to pray for these who are not with us this morning, those who are are dealing with sickness, disease, infirmities, uh, things like that, uh, dealing with situations that that are just very difficult, that just aren't meant to be. But we live in a, a sin cursed world, and so until Jesus returns, we're dealing with these things. So let's pray this morning. For those who are sick among us. Father, I thank you that you are uh, the great physician, that you are the healer, and that uh, you can heal. You can heal Brianna Rainey. You can heal Margaret Lee. You can heal um, anyone you want to. We don't always understand how you work, but we know that you have the power to work. You can work through doctors. You can work through medicine. You can work through rest. You can work through miracles. You can work in any way that you choose to work through. And we know that your word says that if we pray, that you are faithful to us. It doesn't mean that you always answer according to our wishes, but it does mean that you answer. And it does mean that you are there with us and with our friends and with our, our family as we go through trials and, and suffering and sickness. I pray that you would heal this morning. I pray that you would bless our time together as we open your word and we study. To your honor and glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As Donnie mentioned, this morning is Palm Sunday. This is a morning that we and millions of other Christians across the globe celebrate. Uh, this is the day that Jesus rode into town on a donkey, an animal of peace. When he comes the second time, he will come on a white horse, an animal of war. He comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the people praise him. The people accept him. The people approve of him. And they carry with them palm branches, which were symbolic of their approval for him. And they usher him into Jerusalem triumphantly. Just imagine, what would it have been like to be Jesus on that donkey, to experience that kind of approval as you ride into the city? What, maybe what, what would you think? Maybe what would Jesus think? Maybe he knew some things that we didn't know. But what was it like in that event on Palm Sunday? This morning, we're going to be talking about justification. It's a word in the Bible. 
It's used in different ways. But we're going to be talking about this concept of justification. We've been in a series, a, a sermon series, about being made new. And over the last couple of weeks, Adam has talked to you about propitiation and imputation. And this morning we get this word justification. And next week we'll look at redemption. But I was thinking about justification, and I can't relate, I can't relate to what Jesus experienced with the approval that he received going into Jerusalem. I can't relate to that at all. But I got to thinking about this. What, can, what kind of little small example can I give you? And I got to thinking that this year will mark my 15-year high school reunion. Right? How many have had a 15-year? Some of you, some of you young ones are thinking, man, Brother Josh is old. And then some of you are thinking, man, 15 years, I can't, you know, I'm not saying you're old. But can you, rem can you remember back to your 15-year your high school reunion? What were you doing then? Well, I was thinking back to my high school graduation. What were you doing your senior year of high school? I was filling out scholarship applications. And I was getting ready to go off to college. I had my mind set on this glorious place called college. And I sent these applications out to these universities and colleges and and i just thought i had the best the best pick i, I didn't i sent them out of course there's you know there's hundreds of colleges and universities but i sent i sent some out to five or six or seven and i just thought they were amazing and 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 i felt so good when i get these letters back saying you've been accepted you've been approved because i thought man this is cool i'm, I'm, I'm getting to, i'm gonna get to go to to this university or i can have the pick of, of these universities and and I was just really excited, and uh, you know, it feels good when you get approved, doesn't it? It feels good when you're accepted by people or by an institution or at your workplace. It feels good to be accepted and approved, and that's how I felt. I didn't feel the same way a few months later when I started getting letters in the mail saying, show us the money, right? I'm just glad Jesus doesn't do that. Of course, if you turn on your television and you listen to the health and wealth preacher, he's basically saying the same thing the college and university is saying, right? He's saying, God approves you, now show me the money. That's, that's what he's saying. But that's not, that's not in the Bible. That's another sermon. I'm wanting to preach it, but I can't. This morning, we're going to discuss the topic of justification. And we need to understand what justification is and how... This process makes us new. If I could sum up justification in one word, I would say that it is approval. Approval. Sometimes we make things so difficult. Justification is approval. It's being accepted by God. It's being approved by God. It's you being approved by God. A holy God. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. You can turn there if you're there in your Bible or it'll be on the screen. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and, are, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So we've fallen short in our sin, but we're justified, we're approved freely by His grace. Grace is the help of God. Grace is not... Some kind of substance, some kind of mythical, mystical substance that floats on you. We, we, we have this kind of attitude in our Christian culture. Grace is very practical. 
It is God's help through relationships. It is God's help through circumstances. We are justified by God's help. Justification is the fact that though we are sinners and we deserve God's wrath and His judgment, we deserve to be rejected. We deserve to be forsaken. But because of what Jesus has done, He has approved of us. He has accepted us. Amen. This is the legal aspect of our salvation before a holy God. Let me illustrate with a diagram to kind of sum up the last three weeks. Look at this diagram. It has Father God, it has Jesus, and it has you and me. Propitiation is the work that Jesus has done. If you want to think of it in a financial way, it's Jesus' earnings. Jesus did the work for the Father. Jesus appeased the wrath of the Father. Jesus was the sacrifice that pleased the Father. He said, I have completed the work which you sent me here to do. That's propitiation. That's his payment. That's his work. Imputation is the transfer of funds, so to speak. It's the transfer of earnings. You and I are in debt. We're so far in debt we cannot get out of debt. Your sin and my sin is so bad, we are so far in the hole, we deserve an eternity of punishment. And even then it won't pay for it. And somehow Jesus takes that debt and then transfers his righteousness, his earnings, his worth to us. His accomplishment on the cross to us. That's why there's a two-way arrow there. And because of that, we are able to be justified by God. That is when the Father proclaims us approved, clear of sin, forgiven. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 18 if you aren't already there. An amazing story in the Bible <clears throat> that many of you know. A parable that Jesus told about a Pharisee and a tax collector. A tax collector would have been one of the most hated people in this culture. The Pharisee would have been the, the religious guru, the upright man, the man that knew the Old Testament, the man that never sinned. He was squeaky clean. Jesus said this, And he spoke this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. Let us not be like that. Two men went up into the temple to pray, Jesus said. The one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven but struck his chest saying God be merciful to me a sinner I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone that exalts himself shall be abased and he that humbles himself shall be exalted don't miss the irony here 
This Pharisee is a good man. He's faithful to his wife. He gives of his money, of all that he has, all of his possessions. He doesn't sin. He's not an extortioner. He's not a thief. He even thanks God. He is a thankful person. How many people in our culture say, they use it as a byword, they talk about how they're blessed. Who has blessed them? Who are they talking about? You can only be blessed by somebody. Who has blessed them? This man goes a step further and says, God has blessed me. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. This tax collector will be the one that's justified, not the Pharisee. The tax collector has been dishonest. He's been sinful. He has stolen money for the Roman Empire. He has betrayed his own people. That's why they were so hated. Is that they were, they were of their people, and yet they turned around and they, they sucked this money. They sucked the well-being. They sucked the life out of their own people. And yet he calls out to the Lord, and he is saved. He is justified. He is declared righteous before God, all because he asked for mercy. Is that really all there is to it? To being saved? To being justified? To being right with God? Is that really all there is to being saved? See, this is what seems so scandalous to many. How can that be? How can a good, just, holy God let somebody like that off the hook and punish the good guy over here? This evil, wicked tax collector, how can a good God let this man go free and approve him? Call him son? Allow him to sit on a throne in heaven to be a co-heir with Jesus Christ, the King of glory? How can that be? Well, this morning I want to answer a few questions because it is absolutely true. Romans chapter 4, verse, verse 5 says that God justifies the ungodly. And Jesus came into the world to save sinners, the scripture says. Let's look at a few questions regarding justification just to clear this concept up in our minds because there's a lot of confusion with it. But it is central to the gospel. It is part of the gospel. The first question that we need to ask is, is justification being declared approved and right with God, is that free or is it earned? And what I mean here is, I'm asking about the question of value. How valuable is justification? Of course the gospel is free. You can't earn justification. I can't earn justification. But somebody did. Right? Jesus did. It's kind of a trick question. It's free to you and me. But Jesus earned it. And just because something is free doesn't mean that it is cheap. I've sensed in my own life and in our American culture and in Christianity in America, I've sensed, though I know that other cultures and other countries deal with it, but I've, I've sensed it in my own life most deeply that I'm tempted to cheapen the work of Christ, to cheapen the justification of God because it is free. 
Go around El Dorado. Go around Union County and ask how many people think they are going to heaven. Either because they don't think God's justice is that serious or their sin is not that bad. I will talk to people on the street or in a building somewhere and I will ask them, do you think you are going to heaven? And they will say yes. They will either give me one or two answers. There are the occasional person who says no, but most of them will say yes. And after talking to them, I know that they are not followers of Jesus, but they still believe and maintain that they are. And it is either because they don't think their sin is that bad and God will let them in if they just ask. Or they don't really think God is that just and holy and that he just will kind of gloss over the sin. That is at the root of so many people's theology and their thinking about God and their sin. Interestingly, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 speaks of Jesus becoming like us in order to make propitiation for our sins. It uses that word. It says propitiation. But when the tax collector asked God for mercy, he is using the same word. They translate it mercy there, but it's the same word. The same word. What does that mean? To simplify what I'm saying, this tax collector in this story does not have a cheap view of God's grace. In other words, what he is saying when he's saying, have mercy on me, he is saying, God, be propitious to me. That's actually a word. It's an old word. What he is saying is this, God, I've messed up, and my sin is bad, and I know that you are holy, and I know that you have to make this right. I can't. That's why he uses that term of propitiation. He knows that the work has to be done by somebody else. And it can only be God who can do it. Justification is free for you, but it costs the blood of Jesus. As Donnie said, it was our sin that put him on the cross. You and I, we get the gift, but he got the grave. We get the life, but he got the nails on the cross. It's Palm Sunday, as I mentioned. And Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on that day 2,000 years ago. He rode in, approved, accepted, praised. Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel who comes in the name of the Lord. But five days later, that same city and possibly some of those same people were rejecting Him. And they murdered Him on a cross. Let us not forget that we are accepted by God because Jesus was willing to be rejected. Even on the cross, the Father had to turn away. Not ultimately, but it was a very real rejection. A rejection that you or, you or I will never ever experience. And Jesus cried out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Him being forsaken has led to us, to you and to me being accepted. The old hymn says this, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen? Hallelujah, what a Savior. I need that Savior. I need that grace. Justification is a valuable thing, more precious than all the gold and all the jewels in the universe. 
The second question is this. Is justification by faith or is it by works? This is a question of possession. How do we get the justification? It's one thing to be told that in a sermon. It's one thing to know that, to drive by a church sign and to see that. It's another thing to have it count for your life, to have it in you, to have it count for you, to have it a real thing between you and God. How does that get applied to my life? How do I possess justification? And this is the question that 500 years ago led to what is called the Protestant Reformation and many of the the non-Catholic groups that we see today being formed because they disagreed and still disagree with the Catholic Church on this important teaching. This morning, we don't have time to go into what the Catholic Church or other groups, um, some who are Protestant uh, groups that have uh, believe in error on this. We don't have time to go into exactly what they believe, but I can tell you this, if you believe the Bible on it, you will be right. Amen? If you believe the Bible on it, you'll be right. And here's what the Bible says. Romans chapter 5, look at these verses of Scripture. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by the works of the law, the law of God, no human being shall be justified in his sight. Romans 3, 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, that seems pretty cut and dry, doesn't it? And yet we have theological debates about this. People go to churches in mass numbers in millions, and they teach what is contrary to the Scripture, and there's mass confusion. Some of them, some of them are, are not trying to be uh, heretical, but they might believe something that is not in the Bible, and it's just a big confusing thing. And why would it be that way? Well, let me, let's go to one passage of Scripture in James chapter 2. It has confused many people. And I think we should ought to look at it this morning because if there is any passage in the Bible that seems to contradict all the passages that I've just read to you and the rest of the Bible, it is James chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. And it says this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. Now if you take that at face value, he is clearly, James is clearly contradicting Paul. And we might as well throw our Bibles in the trash can. They're not consistent. They're opposed. That's two theological differences that cannot meet, if that's what James is saying. But here's the rule of thumb. Here's the principle. If you have ten passages of Scripture that clearly say one thing, and one passage of Scripture that seems to say the opposite, then the problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with your seeming. Right? The problem is with our interpretation. It's that we can't see what God has written there. We can't properly interpret it. And that's why we have to mine the scriptures. And some of those difficult passages, we can discover, we can figure out by the grace of God and the help of the Holy Spirit. I believe that this passage, and I think it's clear that this passage, properly interpreted, is not talking about the same justification that Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about our justification with God. 
He's talking about how we are made right legally with God. I don't think that's what James is talking about. The word justification is used in many different contexts. You can even see it in Luke 7 that it says all of the people justify God. It says they justified God. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that, that they made God right in the sight of God? No, it doesn't mean that. It just means that they proved that what God was doing or what God was saying was right. The word justification can just mean proof. It just means to prove something. And I think that's what it, James is doing here. What James is talking about is not how we are made right with God, but how we prove that we have real faith. If you look at the context of James, he's talking about acting out our Christian faith. He talks about that all through the book. Giving a, a, a cold drink of water to somebody. Not showing favoritism to people who have money over the people that, that don't have money. He's talking about standing up for the poor. He's talking about caring for orphans and widows. James is making the argument that real faith is a faith that works. That what proves that you have real faith is that good works follow. He's not saying that works, good works, make you right with God. He's saying what proves that you have real faith and what justifies your faith and that it is real and what can prove it to other people is whether there are good works that are following it. Real faith works. But works don't lead to faith. And works don't make us right with God. If you doubt that, let's look at some more scripture. And if you want to talk more, more with me about that after the service or sometime, I'd be happy to explain more of that in depth. But he uses Rahab the harlot, for instance. He uses Rahab and he says, he says that what proved her faith to the Israelites was that she saved them. That's what justified her faith. That's what told them that she had real faith. Look at Romans chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Paul says, for if Abraham were justified by works, he has reason to boast, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's justification. Verse 5, and the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. That's clear, folks. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I think part of the problem and part of the mix-up here doesn't have to do with whether the scriptures are clear or not. Although sometimes the scriptures are very hard to interpret. It takes a lot of work. You, if you want to rake leaves, as, as a pastor that I really like says, if you want to rake leaves, you, you scratch the surface. And that's how you rake leaves. But if you want to get gold, you've got to dig down deep. It's the same way with the scripture. But I think at the core, the main problem is that humanity and each of us in general are works-based driven. We just can't get it out of us. We're just always trying to prove ourselves. We're always trying to pay for our own sin. Whether that be by beating ourselves up, talking ourselves down, trying to do more good than we do bad, trying to pump ourselves up with our own willpower. We're always trying to work out our salvation in a way that God has not commanded us to. 
We have a works-based mentality. And it's even true in our culture when so much has been said and so much is known about Jesus and God's love and how salvation is free, we can still find ways to trust in our own righteousness. Right? Let me give you an example. The tax collector prayed a prayer of salvation. Do you see that? A prayer of salvation is not in the Bible, but the tax collector hears. This is as close as you get to it. He is an example of someone who prayed a prayer of salvation. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. To pray a prayer from a sincere heart to be saved can be a good thing, as it was with this man, obviously. But Christians today and churches for decades upon decades have now formalized and religiousized, if that's a word, probably not, but they've turned this prayer of salvation, they've boiled this thing down into a formula so that in many minds it's become just another religious work. It's just a thing you check off the list to be saved. Who wouldn't go to heaven? Let's pray this prayer. And what it is, it becomes its own religious work and now there are so many people, I hear it all the time, who have prayed a prayer and they think they're going to heaven. But they've never repented and they've never truly trusted in Jesus, and they've never submitted to Him as Lord. But they prayed a prayer. They prayed a prayer. Well, who did they trust when they prayed that prayer? That's the question. Sometimes it's themselves. Sometimes it's the vacation Bible school, or the teacher, or the pastor that they trusted, who told them they were doing everything right. They were doing all the things right, and they, they weren't patient to guard them. Or at worst, they rushed them through the formula so that everybody could be happy and see a child profess Jesus as Savior. And I want to tell you that one of the most dangerous things in our Christian culture, because we talk a lot about not working for salvation, is to turn around and not guard against people trusting in things like a sinner's prayer or baptism. We have to be on guard about this. The tax collector did not have his faith in the prayer that he prayed. He had no faith in himself, no faith in anything he could do, no faith in his own righteousness. He had faith in God alone who could help him, and that's why he prayed. And it's so subtle, but that's what we've got to figure out. That's what we've got to tell people. We've got to tell them, you've got to trust in Jesus. You've got to cling to Jesus. People talk about having faith in their faith. That's ridiculous. The only faith that is saving faith is faith in Jesus Christ. Not faith in whether I prayed a prayer or whether I've got the date marked down somewhere in a book or whether I got baptized when I was seven or eight. The only thing that matters is do I trust Jesus? Is my faith in Him alone? Is that you this morning? Have you trusted Jesus in that way? Or is your faith misplaced? If not, it's not a saving faith. A prayer of salvation can be a good thing. It's a tool. It's a tool to use when you're talking to somebody who hasn't, who's never talked to God before. It's a good tool. You can help them. I'm not knocking that. But what I want to communicate is this. Be very, very careful that the person is putting faith in the Savior and not the prayer, not the work that they're doing, not the thing that you're asking them to do. 
Make sure they're putting faith in Jesus. Third question. Is justification once for all? This is a question of its nature. What is the nature of justification? There's a saying that floats around sometimes. Once saved, can y'all complete it? Always saved. See, we know it. We know it. There's a million verses in the Bible we don't know, but we know that one. Maybe it's because it's four words. That's really easy. Um, now, that cliche is not in the Bible. But it's gotten Baptists and others in more trouble with people than you can imagine. I'm sure some of you have had that conversation with somebody. That phrase just gets us in trouble. People think the weirdest, craziest things about us. Um, I've never been a fan of the phrase, but if you understand it properly, it's absolutely correct. It's absolutely correct. If you said it this way, if you said once justified, always justified, it would even get nearer to the issue. Salvation is, first of all, instant. It is instant. It is once and for all. Justification is once and for all. It is instant. God declares us righteous in an instant upon our faith in Jesus. And God has his hand in that as well. Some people believe it. It's a process. There are many churches out there that believe you can't be declared righteous. You can't fully have God's approval. You won't truly know until you show up at heaven that day. Protestants and Catholics alike believe that. The Bible says justification is instant. Some people believe that what you have to do is you have to work to get more godly and then God will accept you. You've got to stop doing this sin or that sin. You've got to start going to church more. You've got to, you've got to do this and you've got to have a good track record. And maybe if you're a little more godly, then God will accept you. There's only one problem with that. Romans 4, 5 says that he justifies the ungodly. It doesn't say he justifies the more godlier, the more godly. It doesn't say that. I know I just used terrible grammar there. But you get what I'm saying. He justifies the ungodly. Aren't you glad? I am. Oh, I read that verse of Scripture and I say, wait a minute, that's me. I'm the ungodly. And he justifies me. I have nothing to earn. There's nothing I can do, but he will justify me. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Amazing passage of Scripture. Paul says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your, of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Amen and amen. That is pretty clear. That when you and I are forgiven by God, our sin is nailed to the cross. We are forgiven once and for all. That is our joy. That is our hope. That is our identity. We are free once and for all. It is instant. The Bible says that we, at justification, become a new creation. The only way that we can do anything good is if we are instantaneously made new. The idea of a process... A new creation doesn't fit into that. At what point do you become new and then are able to do anything good? You're not. Because you've had nothing final done to you. Nothing new done to you. 
That's why Jesus told, told a, a Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be made new. Secondly, it's permanent. This declaration of God on you isn't going anywhere. He is your father and has made you his child. How can you live in fear that your father will disown you? God's not like that kind of father. When God says, you're my son, you're my daughter, it's permanent. That's what's so glorious about the gospel. That's what's scandalous about it, but that's what's glorious about it. John tells us in chapter 10 of his gospel, nothing can take us out of his hand. And Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are sealed with his Holy Spirit. I have joy in the assurance that God has given me approval. And that though I may fail him in my weaknesses, he will not let me ultimately fail. And it is his declaration of grace over me and approval over me that gets me up each day and pushes me onward. Amen? My father, my friend, has had mercy on me. He has declared his love over me. He has declared his love over you. And nothing can take that away. And when you know and believe that, see, it's important. It's important to know this because real change cannot happen in our lives until we understand that justification is instant and it is permanent. It is knowing and believing God's change and God's work and God's love in our lives that pushes us, that compels us to change and to become new, to, be, to grow in Christ. It is the freedom that sets us free. We don't work for the freedom. That's slavery. God sets us free and then says, go run in my grace. Third, it is active. If you are justified and you have real faith and you're going to be active, you're going to follow Christ and you're going to produce good works. This is James' argument. I think this is the argument that he's making in his book. I will show you my faith by my works. It does no good for you to sit and say, I have faith in Jesus, but there be no evidence of that. Right? I think this is, this is a huge problem in our culture. We have, we, have, we have promoted such a weak gospel. We have been so scared to confront sin. Our churches have no accountability and no discipline. We have become all completely driven by the event. And we have become so weak on community and helping each other grow and helping each other fight sin. And we have become so weak on the gospel that we have people who literally think that all, that all it requires you to do to be a follower of Christ is to sit in a chair and to show up every now and then. It is not an event. It is a lifestyle. It is a change of life. If you and I have real faith in Jesus, if we really understand that that man on the cross died for me and spilt his blood for me and he reigns in heaven and he intercedes for me, if we really truly believe that, there is no way in the world we can sit in a chair and that be all. We've got to live for him. We've got to fight our sin. We've got to tell others. We've got to pray. We're going to enjoy being with him. We're going to struggle with sin. All of us have that. But there's going to be something deeper in us, a deeper identity. It's going to be active. You can't live like you've got a ticket to heaven and go do the things that the devil does and still get in. That's not the message. 
the last four or five decades, the church has shouted, they have, they have taught, and they have, they have put out their theories that the problem in American Christianity is a lack of discipleship. And I would agree with that to a degree. Our churches need to be stronger with how we, we train and help people grow in Christ. But the problem is not a lack of discipleship, it's a lack of conversion. When a person becomes a disciple, a true disciple of Jesus, you're not going to have to beg them to follow Jesus. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to beg them. If I, I understand that everybody's going to struggle with sin. I struggle with sin all the time. But if I come to you once, twice, three, four, five, if I keep coming to you and I say, please follow Jesus, please follow Jesus, please follow Jesus, and you continue to refuse, and there's no change in your life, and there's no love for Christ, not even a seed of love, you're proving to me that you don't know him. It's not a lack of your discipleship. It's that you aren't a disciple. You don't know Christ. Maybe that's you today. This message is for you. You need to be saved. The reason you don't like discipleship is because you don't know Christ. Know Christ and then you'll love discipleship. You'll want to grow. You'll want to follow him. Finally, uh, as we close, I want to I throw this out to you. Justification is an amazing thing. God does so much in us. There are 25 or 30 different things that God does in us at the moment of salvation and throughout our lives. Justification, imputation, mortification. You can go through all the Asians. You, there's lots of things that God is doing in us. It's an amazing thing to study and to look into. And God is so gracious and loving to help us in this way and to change us. But the greatest thing about justification is that it's for God's praise. It's for His praise. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand. He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What's the biggest thing that you've reconciled in your life? What's the biggest situation that you have fixed? Think about it for a second. Maybe it was an issue in your family. Maybe it was an issue at work. Maybe you've reconciled two friends together. Maybe you've been able to, to fix some large machine or something like that. What's the largest thing that you've reconciled or fixed? You know what God has reconciled? He's reconciled his desire and ability to forgive sinful man with his holy justice. And the way those two things are reconciled through the blood of his son. And he deserves praise for that. He deserves all glory and honor. That's why we meet today. That's the gospel. He's changed your life. He's changed my life through the sacrifice of his son. The question of the wise in ancient times was how can a man be right with his creator? The questions we have today are when is the latest edition of the iPhone coming out? 
Where are we going to eat? Where are we going on vacation this year? All questions that aren't necessarily bad. But the question of the wise is how can a man be right with his creator? Some of you know that. Some of you don't this morning. To sum it all up, let me tell you. Jesus died on the cross, cross, so that if you would call on the name of the Lord like that tax collector, what he did on the cross will count for you, and you could be approved in God's sight and have a new life. Will you do that today? Will you ask God to save you? Will you cry out to him, realize the, the gravity of your sin, and realize the greatness of his mercy? And will you say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner? Let me tell you something. God is so good. He has promised to answer that prayer. If you're praying that from a true heart and you're repentant and you want to put your faith in Jesus, God has said, absolutely. It doesn't matter what you've got in your past. It doesn't matter what your future holds. I will take you. You will be mine. I will make you my son. I will make you my daughter and you will be mine forever. That is the beauty of the gospel and that is why he deserves praise from us. Amen. Let's stand together. During our time of invitation, let me read this passage from Luke 18 again to you. I invite you to come. I'll be down front if you need to be saved this morning. If I can help you with that, come and see me. If you are a follower of Christ this morning, let the knowledge of what he's done for you be renewed and rejoice in him. Don't leave these doors today. Don't leave this building unamazed at the salvation that he's brought into your life. And the tax collector standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes to heaven, but struck his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. Your mercy is great. You gave your son. And he came. He died for us an agonizing death, a death that we could never understand. And the pain that you felt and the agony that you felt to watch him, to turn away, we cannot understand. But God, you tell us you did it because of love. Because of your mercy on us. There are some of us in this room today, God, and we feel that maybe maybe you're far away from us. Maybe our love for you has grown cold. Maybe we feel that your love for us has grown cold. God, let us know the truth this morning. That your love for us is a consuming fire. That you took the greatest pains. You did everything that was necessary to make us free. Help us to praise you for that this morning. Father, we love you. And we pray that if there's someone in this room today, God, that does not know you, that that today will be the day of their salvation. That they'll know it won't cost them anything. They just need to come to the foot of the cross. Repent. And believe. Help us to worship you now, Father.
to give you the glory you deserve. In Christ's name, amen.